Welcome to Business Lens, broadcast on WKXL, available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, and I'm joined, as always, by Chris Hill, the host of Motley Fool Money, the number one stock investing radio show in America. Chris, welcome. Good to be here. It is good to have you. We were just talking about the fact that you work with one of your many affiliates in Keene, New Hampshire. So you are uh, in New Hampshire where we're broadcast, um, but you're also on 60 stations around the country. 60 with more on the way. And you, I, I mean, I'm not making this up. You can check the charts. When it comes to investing, business, economics, stocks, your your podcast is truly one of the one of the titans in that in that listening segment. It is it is big. I'm not going to disagree with that. Well, you know, it's like the <laughs> Ghostbusters principle, right? You remember when Zool says, "Are you a god?" And no. when someone asks you a question like that, you you say yes. Say yes. So when I say you are an absolute, you know, King Kong. Oh, we're going to return to King Kong at the end of this show. Let's get into the first topic of the day. There was a really interesting deep dive article in the Atlantic this week that posed the question about whether the growth of index funds are fundamentally changing the nature of stock investing, stock markets, and the economic function that markets are supposed to fulfill, which is to send signals, to let investors use their collective wisdom to evaluate the prospects of companies as investments and then to make buying and selling decisions based on those analyses. This is obviously what you and the experts at The Motley Fool do every day. It's your bread and butter. And the contention from the article in The Atlantic is, look, if you've got more and more of the money in the stock market sitting with index funds, which just buy a broad cross-section of the market, they sort of rise and fall with the market, then a lot of the money that's in the market is sort of zombie investments. It's just moving with the tide. What did Sarah Palin once say? Only, only dead fish go with the flow. And so this money is going with the flow. So the question for you is, first, what did you make of this whole argument? Are index funds a threat or somehow fundamentally changing the way stock markets operate? I thought it was an interesting article, although I don't think index funds are a threat. I think they are a phenomenal first step for people who are looking to invest over the long term. And for a lot of people, it's the only step they need to take. At The Motley Fool, we're really interested in investing and stocks and businesses. And what are the businesses that are going to change the world? What are the industries that are on the rise? We're interested in all of that but we fully understand that not everybody is. We all have to deal with money, but some people would prefer to spend their time doing other things. So for those people, and I've got people in my family who are like that, they're not interested in trying to pick individual stocks. They just want to methodically put money away in an index fund. And if you're doing that, putting money away in the S&P 500 index fund, that's a phenomenal way to grow your wealth over time. Um, so I, I don't think that's a threat. I do think the growth of uh, funds changes the market in some small ways, but I don't think it's. Um, I don't think this should necessarily change the way anyone 
or any institution decides to invest. And I don't think it's going to, because the fact of the matter is, there are a lot of institutions, there are a lot of businesses on Wall Street that are built on the idea that picking individual stocks is an even better way to grow your wealth. So while index funds are bigger than they've ever been, there's still a huge industry built around non-index investing. One of the arguments that the article makes is that three big managers of index funds, the the most well-known is Vanguard, there are others, that these three have an outsized position in holding stocks of major corporations. And in the shareholder decisions, because they hold such a high proportion of the stock in a given company, they could, in theory, wield tremendous influence in the management of that company. And obviously, experts like you, like the folks of The Motley Fool, base a lot of your investment strategy and analysis on smart management. It's something we talk about on this show quite often. And the point of the article is, in most cases, these large index funds are not exercising their voting position as shareholders in these companies, which changes the dynamics of shareholder votes. You've got huge blocks of votes, 25%, 30% of votes of shareholders in companies essentially just lying there and it changes the relative power of other shareholders. Do you see that as being a factor worth taking into consideration as you and your colleagues at The Motley Fool think about the management and strategic direction of these companies? I absolutely think it's something people should take into consideration, but I think it's, in that sense, it is no different than any other consideration you would take as an as an investor. And let me give you an example that doesn't really have to do with, with shareholder rights or um, proxy voting. Uh, there are people who invest based on how they live their life and their belief system. And because of that, there are certain stocks and certain industries they don't want to be invested in. There are people who want nothing to do with gambling and the casino industry. And so that means there's a whole swath of businesses, uh, and we can now include sports betting in that, that, uh, that they're not going to own shares of. There are people who feel that way about tobacco alcohol, firearms. Uh, so, uh, and, and by the way, I, I absolutely think um, you should, as um, one of our co-founders of Motley Fool, David Gardner says, um, you should make your portfolio reflect how you want to see the world. Um, so I, I, I don't begrudge anyone for investing that way. There are a lot of great investments, by the way, that have nothing to do with tobacco, alcohol, or firearms. That being said, you would have done really well as an investor if for the past 10 years, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, you owned shares of Altria, the company formerly known as Philip Morris. Few stocks have done as well over the last 50 years as that one has. Uh, let me get back to the shareholder voting. Um, I know I'm supposed to care about proxy voting. 
as an investor, I know that. I will tell you though, Matt, I rarely engage in it. Uh, to me, I look at it and I say, the, uh, I am one small investor and uh, my vote doesn't, re unlike voting in political elections, uh, my vote doesn't really matter all that much. Now, every once in a while, um, if there's something going on with a, a board of director seat or something like that, I will cast a vote. But for the most part, uh, I, I know that going in. My eyes are wide open when I buy shares of a company. I do look at the management. I do ask myself, do I trust these people uh, and the way that they are not just managing the business, but managing their board? How are they dealing with compensation? I take all of that into consideration before I click the buy button. So for me as an investor in my own personal life, my shareholder vote is when I click the buy button. One other question about the perspective of the investor in all of this, the function, and this is another issue that the Atlantic article raises, the function of prices in economics is to send information about how much things are worth. And a strategy that you discuss often on this show is to take a long-term perspective. Look, we all know markets are irrational a lot of the time. GameStop, for example, there are bubbles. People will get on fads and bandwagons and investors aren't always taking fundamental value into the best consideration in making short-term decisions. But the fundamental thesis that you've often advanced is that in the long run, fundamental value, smart management, having innovation and a, a clear business vision to create things that people are going to want to buy is going to be reflected in the kinds of stock prices we're going to see, the kinds of returns you're going to get as an investor. One of the issues that the Atlantic article raises is if index funds are holding companies blindly, they're holding stocks that are across the whole market, or they're holding sort of a bundle of stocks in an industry, maybe those price signals are getting muted. Maybe individual companies that are better managed, that have a better vision, that do more innovation are not going to be rewarded in the same way in their stock price. And therefore you as an investor are not going to be rewarded for your investment in the exact same way as you should be. Do you worry about that effect at all? That maybe price signals in the long run won't reflect value the way they should. I don't worry about that in the long run because I'm a believer in the uh, famous quote from Benjamin Graham, the father of value in, uh, investing, who said, uh, in the short run, the stock market is a voting machine. In the long run, it's a weighing machine, uh, which is another way of saying, in the short run, over any one to three month period, even in a 12 month period, there are stocks that are popular. There are stocks that fall out of favor. Uh, but in the long run, the longer you own shares of a company, the more the true value and substance of that company uh, comes to bear. So uh, I, I think that can happen in the short run. It does happen in the short run. But by the way, that's one of the reasons I am someone who owns an index fund, an S&P 500 index fund. It's the first investment I ever made in the stock market and it's the longest holding I have. But it's also why I invest in individual stocks 
because I, I do believe that that's the way to outperform the market is by looking to become a part owner in great companies and hold those shares over time. Well, it's a really thought-provoking article, definitely worth your time. Or if you want the Notes version and some intelligent analysis to go with it, you just got it here on the Business Lens Podcast. And you can also get more of this kind of thing on Motley Fool Money. Let's turn to our next topic. The jobs report last Friday was, in your words, a monster. And I'm foreshadowing again. I did the King Kong thing. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm foreshadowing. You'll see where I'm going with this later. You point out that the challenge that all of this hiring presents for larger companies is going to be, how quickly can we hire? Because it's a lot easier to fire people than it is to hire people. What does that look like? What, what kind of concern does that disparity raise for you? Let me give you an example from over the weekend and how it's going to play out for people like you and me. Uh, over the past weekend, Delta Airlines had to cancel around 100 flights. And it wasn't because of mechanical problems. It was because of staff shortages. Delta, like a lot of airlines, had to um, lay some people off. They had to put some uh, pilots and, and flight attendants on furlough. Um, you can't just snap your fingers and get all those people back. Um, so what that's going to mean for people like you and me in the short term is uh, even though Delta is looking to ramp up capacity, they're not going to be able to. And so that means that uh, supply is going to be smaller than they want it to be, which means that airline tickets are going to cost more than we would like them to. Uh, we saw this play out a decade ago with uh, the Great Recession and the housing market, where um, all these home builders had to lay off a lot of skilled workers. And then once things started to rebound, it still took years for some of these home builders to get back up to their previous capacity because th this is skilled labor. Um, and some of those folks left the home building workforce altogether, around, close to a third of them uh, just decided to find employment in other industries. So I'm not saying it's gonna take that long for the airlines to get back up to speed, but as you said, Matt, uh, it's, uh, it's a lot quicker to lay off 10,000 people than it is to hire 10,000 people, particularly when we're talking about skilled labor. So I, I think that the jobs report that we got for the month of March was incredibly promising. Uh, for those who missed it, just over 900,000 jobs added in the month of March. They revised the reports for January and February. That was another 156,000 on top of that. So it's, it's great to see. And I, I expect that the jobs report for April will be robust as well. Um, it doesn't mean there aren't going to be some, you know, uh, some bumps along the way, um, not just in airline and construction, uh, but in other industries as well. So it's, it's, things are going in the right directions, but nobody should expect it to be perfectly smooth. One of the things that I'm hearing as you run through some of these issues is exactly the word you used, turbulence. The idea that seeing jobs reports, which in normal economic times, there's a pretty fast reaction from the market to positive economic news. It gets baked in to people's expectations pretty quickly. And they start to look down the track and say, well, we're hiring now, we're, we're seeing positive jobs reports, we're seeing positive earnings reports. 
they kind of augur that out for the future. Part of what I'm hearing in this is as we undergo this great reopening that we're all hoping, uh, hoping, there you go, hoping is going to happen in 2021, there are going to be some of those bumps. Do you see other areas where there's going to be perhaps a mismatch between what we would normally see, good news on the economic front and the performance of companies, the ability of companies to translate that into profitability immediately? There are businesses out there that, uh, l- let's go with retail for just a second. Um, we know that the most important time of year for sort of your general retailers, uh, Walmart, Costco, uh, Target, Amazon, the, the best time of year for them is the holidays, um, November and December. The second most important time is back to school. Uh, so th- there is lumpiness in, in the retail industry and, and we adjust our expectations accordingly. I think the, what we're going to see over the next 12 months is more, more of that uh, because you've got some lumpiness in the retail industry and other industries as well, some cyclicality. Um, and then when you layer on top of that staffing issues, Um, We're not hiring as quickly as we would like. Um, We have a backlog in this one area. We have too many folks over here and not enough over there. Um, I I think that will just serve to make it a little bit bumpier. So what what does that translate in terms of profitability? I think there are going to be some companies that um, will, will come out with a quarterly earnings report that is low. And then three months later, it's much higher than expected. It's almost like a spring coil because of the hiring issues that uh, a lot of them are going to be dealing with. Um, so again, it's as as long you know this this is one more reason where it's great to be able to take the long term view. If you're investing in Home Depot or Lowe's, yeah, you want the next quarterly report to be good. But if you're owning shares of this company for the next twenty years, one quarter doesn't matter so much. Well, I've teased it long enough. I foreshadowed it enough times. You, Chris Hill, wanted to talk about Godzilla versus King Kong. What do you read into Godzilla versus King Kong? The only reason I want to talk about this is not because I have seen the movie, because I I haven't seen it and I don't necessarily intend to see it. Um, I was genuinely surprised that, that this movie did nearly $50 million at the box office over the weekend. And the reason I was surprised by that is because movie theaters are operating at limited capacity and the movie is also available on HBO Max. So people can watch it and people did watch it from the comfort of their own home. Um, but the fact that it did $50 million in box office over the weekend tells me a couple of things. One, people really want to get out of their houses. They want to go to movies. I mean, and if it's to go to this one, my goodness. Right. Because this is obviously a, a you know, it's a, it's a big action movie. You would expect it to do well on the big screen in normal times. But the last uh, movie like this uh, that came out a couple of years ago didn't do particularly well uh, at the box office. Um, so Although it people- did have Josh Lyman from the West Wing in it apparently so sure that's a thing yeah although 
Bradley yeah, Whitford in action movies, maybe not quite as good as Bradley Whitford in an Aaron Sorkin show or the movie Get Out. But yeah, anyway. fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> Um, I, so I think this bodes well for the, the movie industry. I think it, it speaks to sort of this theme that you and I have talked about for weeks now, the great reopening. Um, people really want to get out of their houses. And when you look at the fact that uh, now in the U.S., we're looking at 3 million vaccine doses a day, upwards of 4 million a day, um, as long as we can get through, I think, the next four to six weeks, um, without some significant rise in cases. I know there are places in the U.S. where we're seeing a rise, um, but the more shots in arms we get, uh, the closer we get to, to that kind of reopening. And again, I think, it, I think it bodes well for all of those types of businesses, including and especially restaurants. And we've talked on this show before because it's a shared interest of ours about streaming services. Do you read anything into the tea leaf about the fact that People were watching this on HBO Max, but they were also going to the theater. And so there's been so much made of like Wonder Woman 1984 and the studio strategy. Maybe they're eating their own seed corn a little bit by doing these dual releases. But King Kong versus Godzilla, does that sort of give the lie to that? Does it seem like you can have this dual release strategy and it can be successful? I think it, it does prove that, but it's not going to surprise me if... Uh, some studios decide, just as we saw last year, like, you know, with Wonder Woman 1984, okay, we're going to make this available online or, you know, or Disney has done this with Disney Plus where they say, we're going to release this on Disney Plus, but you're going to have to pay 30 bucks for it. Uh, some of these studios are going to come out and say, nope, this one's going to movie theaters. This is going to movie theaters. It it'll get to the streaming service soon enough, but we're going to movie theaters first. Makes sense to me, but I look, I share your optimism about the fact that, well, I mean, I also share your read that this is a measure of people's desperation to some degree. I mean, my gosh, we're not talking about Casablanca here, people, but <laughs> at the end of the day, yeah, it, it seems like if, if what you're looking for is a sign that the great reopening is going to happen, look no further than here. People want to get out. All right, Chris Hill, Motley Fool Money, number one stock investing radio show in America and here on Business Lens. Thanks so much for joining us.